Hello and welcome to the Bible Difficulties and Answers podcast. I'm your host, Lance Smith. Today we dive into a verse that may be proof that a new writer, known as a documentary hypothesis, took over chapter 2 of Genesis, or it's nothing more than a difference without a distinction, same kind of name and no big deal, or does a change in name going from God to Lord God signify something else, maybe a personal relationship with God? As usual, I will present a number of different opinions from my research and conclude with my own thoughts. Show notes will include links to all we discuss. Are you ready to dive in? All right, let's learn together. Genesis 2-4, and we always use the New Living Translation. This is the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. All right, did you notice two things in that verse? First, the name of God switched here to Lord God, which is what today's podcast focus is. But also second, instead of the heavens and the earth, the verse here switches to earth and the heavens. I believe both of these items are really important here. If you think about it, the name of God changed because the focus is now on the earth first, not the heavens. So let's take a look at the problem for uh, this verse and we go back to the big book of Bible difficulties. And I quote, Many critics insist that Genesis 2 must have been written by someone different from the one who wrote Genesis 1, since Genesis 2 uses a different name for God. However, conservative scholars have always insisted that Moses composed Genesis, as indeed both Jewish and Christian scholars have down through the uh, centuries. Indeed, the first five books of the Old Testament are called the books of Moses or the Law of Moses. Back to me. Now let's explore first what is known as a documentary hypothesis, which attempts to explain how a different author took over chapter 2 of Genesis. From a Russell Grigg article entitled, Did Moses Really Write Genesis? He says, and I quote, This is a liberal slash critical view which denies that Moses wrote Genesis to Deuteronomy. It teaches that various anonymous authors compiled these five books, plus other portions of the Old Testament, from centuries of oral tradition up to 900 years after Moses lived, if in this view he even existed. The idea of multiple authorship of these books was first proposed by Jean Astruc in Paris in 1753. However, the foremost exponent was Julius Wellhausen, who lived from 1844 to 1918, who restated the documentary hypothesis in terms of the evolutionary view of history, which was prevalent in philosophical circles at the time. He claimed that those parts of the Old Testament that dealt with sophisticated doctrine, and that's one God, the Ten Commandments, the tabernacle, etc., were not truth revealed by the living God, but were ideas that evolved from lower stages of thinking, including polytheism, animism, ancestor worship, etc. Hence the need to find or fabricate later authors. One of the main arguments was that writing had supposedly not been invented yet at the time of Moses. Thus, the documentary hypothesis undermines the authenticity of the Genesis creation, fall, flood accounts, as well as the whole patriarchal history of Israel. It presupposes that the whole of the Old Testament is one gigantic literary fraud and calls into question not only the integrity of Moses, but also the trustworthiness and divinity of Jesus. (laughs) No wonder the critics have embraced it so warmly. Back to me. This is where liberal theologians of the Bible point to this discrepancy, the use of God versus Lord God, as a different writer detailing a different creation event. 
However, the documentary hypothesis explanation has significantly waned in recent years due to the work of biblical principles of interpretation, and that's called by a fancy word, hermeneutics, as well as re recent Christian scholarship. So it's not an argument now considered by most biblical scholars. That being said, let's get back to the first question here, though. Why make a change to the name of God when at first gla glance it doesn't seem necessary? So let's start with a potential solution to the name change to Lord God in Genesis 2-4. We're going to go back to the big book of Bible difficulties for their solution. Moses did write the first five books of the Old Testament. The use of a different term for God in the second chapter of Genesis does not prove that there was a different author. It simply shows that the same author had a different purpose. In chapter 1, God is the creator, whereas in chapter 2, he is the communicator. First, man is seen in his relation to the creator, hence the use of God or the Hebrew word Elohim, which means a mighty one. Now, God is seen as the covenant maker, thus the use of Lord God, the one who makes covenants with man. Different names are used of God since they designate a different aspect of his dealings with man. Back to me. Now, I think the big book of Bible difficulties is onto something here, but I think the language may be a bit too confusing between creator and covenant maker. So let's look at some other research now. Dr. Frank Spina, Seattle Pacific University professor of Old Testament, from an article titled Eden and East of Eden, Genesis 2-4 through 3-24 says, and I quote, Perhaps the very first thing we notice is that the name of God has changed. Throughout the creation story, the creator is known simply as God the Hebrew word Elohim, and then out of the blue, we encounter a distinctive personal name, the Lord God, Hebrew Yahweh Elohim. Later, we shall discover that this name sets Israel's God apart from all other named deities of the surrounding peoples. This abrupt change of name subtly suggests that God is now relating to the created order in a new way altogether, close quote. So this is the part where it starts to make sense to me. There is a personal aspect to God here in Genesis 2-4, now apparent, that wasn't apparent in Genesis 1. Why would that be? Let's dive a bit further here into the reason. From the website Genesis for Ordinary People, in an article entitled, Why is it God in Genesis 1 and Lord God in Genesis 2? And it says, and I quote, When two people converse with each other, they use each other's name. But if one man speaks to a group of people, names become less important. The speaker may introduce himself in a formal manner, and he doesn't use the names of the individuals in the group, but addresses the group in mass. In Genesis chapter 1, God speaks to humanity about reproduction, nutrition, and migration. But in chapter 2, God begins to speak to an individual man. Now back to me. In essence, what we have here is a gradual process unfolding of knowing God in a different way in Genesis 1 and 2. A clear example, I think, from my research is found from a sermon on December 8, 2021, from John Seifert of Preston Highlands Baptist Church entitled, The Creator Comes Close. I quote here from the sermon. It's kind of long, but bear with me here. Genesis 2-4 begins with a heading telling us that this section is about what happened with the heavens and the earth that God created. And what happens centers on God's image bearers and their unique creation and their unthinkable rebellion. 
This brings us to the end of verse 4, where we see a new name for God, the Lord God. This is the pairing of two Hebrew names for God, Yahweh and Elohim. Genesis 1 exclusively uses Elohim. This name for God highlights his transcendent power and glory, his role as creator. But then in verse 4, Moses starts calling God Yahweh Elohim, or the Lord God. Yahweh is the personal name of God. It's the name he gives himself at the burning bush with Moses. It's a name linked to his covenant. It's a name that connects God to his people and his promises. So when Moses calls God Yahweh Elohim in Genesis 2-4, he is making a massive theological point. He is saying that the transcendent creator, God of Genesis 1, is also the personal redeeming God of the Exodus. He's saying that the God who creates is also the God who relates. He is saying that Israel's God is both creator and redeemer. Moses begins this section of the narrative by making it clear that the one true and living God is both transcendent and personal. He is creator and redeemer, mighty and merciful, Lord and Savior. Close quote. Now back to me again. Do you see why this verse is not a difficult verse, but a vitally important verse for us relationally to God? Maybe this example will help make sense of the change from Genesis 1, using the word God, and Genesis 2, using the phrase Lord God. Let's say you have a parent named John. When he speaks to a group of people that also includes you, he simply uses the name John. But when you, the child, and John speak personally, you and he both know him as dad, not John. It's a personal relationship you have, and the name change reflects that relationship. Same person two different names. Make sense? I think Moses made an important point for us here, moving the focus now to the earth first, then the heavens in Genesis 2-4, and then referring to Lord God in recognition of our personal relationship to the Creator. Okay, now while I think that this difficult Bible passage was relatively easy to explain, next week we'll jump right back in again to an extremely controversial subject as we look at Genesis 2-8. Was the Garden of Eden a real place? or just a myth. That should be a lot of fun. You may reach out to us at our website, bibledifficultiesandanswers.podbean.com, or you may reach out to me directly at our email address, bibledifficultiesandanswers at gmail.com with any questions, comments, concerns, fits of righteous indignation, or just to say hi. Also, please like and subscribe to this podcast, and also write a review and give it a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, iHeart, or your podcast video of choice. It really does help get the word out about the most amazing book ever written. Again, I'm Lance Smith. Until next time, I wish you good luck, good health, and God bless. So long, everybody.